this whole pandemic has kind of rearranged everybody's thinking and, and it's yet, changed the face of things it really has yeah you know i mean frankly the idea of doing performances and just being able to set it up once and beam it out to the world it's like good old television for crying out loud i feel bad for theaters but you know when we were taking artists and putting them on airplanes and hotels and restaurants and accommodations and ground transit and shoveling everybody around like a dog and pony show boy if this works out you know it would be nice to just do something once beam it to the world and uh Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. And it does. It beams to the world. You know, yeah. here's, here's the perfect example. I used to go to, in fact, I was involved in this film festival that happened every year in Hollywood called Cinecon. And uh, this was last year was the first year that they couldn't do it live. So they did it virtually. We usually have about 500 people coming in from all over the world. The people that were involved during our Zoom Cinecon was closer to 80,000. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Uh, so look at what we're looking at, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, there we were like when we were doing the Three Stooges show, which was an interesting, I'll call it an experiment. You know, it would have been interesting to set it up in a beautiful theater, which we did. The script was good. The talent was good. It was a good show. I mean, in many, mm -hmm. many levels. And when we did it in Chicago, think about it. If we had just had like about five cameras on the thing and if it was just plugged in, how many tens of thousands of people could have been able to see the thing without having to shovel that thing around, you know? Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. There's good, there's good and bad to this. There's losing the live energy that a performer loves, you know, to get from their audience, but you've got a larger audience. So yeah, exactly. Well, I think that was the advent of television in the first place. So in a way we're just kind yeah. of reinventing and everything old is new again or everything <laughs> <laughs> except us <laughs> yeah well yeah i hear you well listen let's get into this because paying our respects to black history month and mm -hmm. uh, i know i it's always a kick when you join me nick this is we oh, always thank you such a great time together i thought yeah. it, i thought it would be smart to pay some respect given the fact i culturally have some comments here Black Lives mm -hmm. Matter. It is Black History Month. So I wanted to pay respect to that. But I've also said the word diversity is an interesting thing. If we truly had and can acknowledge that we have diversity and there is diversity by virtue of the fact that the word is coined and it has meaning for what diversity means. So we do have diversity. If we mm -hmm. all acknowledge that there's diversity, then we really don't need to have the word anymore to define diversity. Mm -hmm. It's know? almost, it, it almost comes off as um, uh, pandering in a way well, by using that word, because we're not, you know, it's almost like I feel towards me, I'm talking about personally, I'm, I don't, you know, diversity is a wonderful thing to me. Uh, you know, I, I, I treat everyone the same. So when I'm constantly being fed this, I, I want to just turn around and say, what, what, what's your problem? I'm doing it, you know, well, but I know is, a lot of people aren't. Yeah, well, and therein lies the rub. It's kind of like we all acknowledge the world is made of infinite amount of colors unless mm -hmm. you unless you happen to not be able to see them and maybe you're colorblind and maybe there's a section of population that wants to be uh colorblind I, I look at it this way every child which is you know when we're children we're still in our highly creative state because we're still exploring us ourselves the world as we know it the people around us you know community mm -hmm. we're exploring as children and the first one of the first things we do is we go get crayolas or crayons 
And mm-hmm. what do they do when you're a real small child? They give you a box of like five crayons and then you start coloring. And, mm-hmm. and what is the first thing, generally speaking, that the child starts to do is says, gee, there's not enough colors in here. Why, why can I have a larger set? Say, great, great. Here's your box of 16 crayons. And then that's not mm-hmm. enough. Here's your big box of 64. Well, the next thing you know, the child who's really into this is going, I still don't have the color that I want or enough of them. I want the big super box, you know, give me the right, one that has right, right. 264 crayons in it with all those different colors. Yeah. So there is kind of a need to say, if you've already gone through that experience, what's with this problem that some people that is, you know, says, no, I want a box of crayons. It's only got one color in it. <laughs> Not everybody has the brain power to associate uh, with that analogy. And it's a great analogy. But not everybody has that uh, capacity, you well, know. And and again, it's the old it's the old song from South Pacific about being carefully taught, you know. Yeah, uh, you've got to be carefully taught. Well, and... I th- I think the separation of cultures, the separation, you know, I think Rick Richard Niles, who was on the program a couple of weeks ago, he said the same thing. I think dividing up even listening to music, styles of music, the creation of art and communications by ethnic groups or what color people are it's great to respect them and honor them and and as culture and communications of dance and ritual to say this is what this clan or tribe brings to the world but the separation of art by what color people happen to be you know black or white he said it's absolutely mm-hmm. ridiculous a great song mm-hmm. is a is a great song absolutely yeah. I, i'm going to tell you something i learned from a documentary they showed on i forget the station it was but it was the it was called the history of comedy and uh, one of the um, well, that's why we uh, now that you've brought that up, that's exactly why we've brought you here today. <laughs> so, so carry on, and then we'll get into the meat of this. Go on. I will, I will. But um, if one uh, episode was about women, a lot of the women, and I understood this completely, a lot of the women took offense that they were referred to as female comedians. They brought offense to a discussion as compared to a gate or a wall? What are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm, you're gonna get it. I'm talking about- um, I'm gonna get it? Know. I'm gonna get it? Oh, I hope so. It's been far too long. All right, carry on, Nicholas. But you know what I'm saying. The girls yeah. are saying they're offended. It's like, I'm not, a, I'm not, you know, I don't want to be labeled. I'm a comedian, right. just like you're a comedian. And it goes with black comedians. It's like, no, he's not a black comedian. He's a comedian. Right. You know? here's, okay. So here's the respect to, again, Black History Month. And even when I was programming at the network, I said, okay, we have to do this. We're supposed to, but Black History is equitably as good as any and all history. And, you know, how about Black History year how about black Mm -hmm. history in general and how about all of our cultures as history i guess they call it world cultures and history and it's great to give respect and i do know that we need as a culture to give honoring to the black history that has contributed so much culture to america and more than likely you know of course to the world as well it's a big story Mm -hmm. it's a huge story yeah it's probably the most significant story of of people moving (laughs) around the planet you know since the beginning of time Mm -hmm. but but anyway here we are and i wanted to because i know you have not only as an educator as a film course in the academic curriculums you have media that you promote and sell you actually have a film course the the love of laughter it's it's um the history of uh classic film comedy in america great and then you do have great amount of time spent to in particular the comics 
of black mm-hmm. heritage, whether it was, boy, we're going to go through a litany here and I'm going to let you take over, but you want to start with, say, Manton Moreland, who everybody Actually, would... Actually, I'd like to start before that because he, he followed in the footsteps of Stephen Fetchett. Now, that's a bad word to some people. That's a, you know, when people hear Stephen Fetchett. But the truth of the matter is, he was the one that started it all on film. He was the first African-American star. And I know that, again, even in academic circles, they say, isn't it too bad because sociologically certain talent actors, the only way actors, comedians, comics, talent in general who are black, if they were going to get started in the film industry, they always had to be portraying, shall we say, the subservient roles, whether they were the and they were the comedic interpretation of those roles, much at the expense of the white dominant culture's humor. Mm -hmm. You know, they were the butt of the humor. So I guess there was already a caste system implied. But At the same time, the comics that took those roles, they were very good at the elements of comedy. They were extraordinary, in fact. So go ahead and go deeper into the first positions of, of Step and Fetch It, which unfortunately has become, shall we say, a derogatory term. Please you know, educate everybody on the nature of why the comedy was so good and what was unique about each one. Well, I think that's an excellent way to introduce this because I'm often derided because I talk about these people, but I I do an eight-week course in adult education about the history of comedy in general, and I try to set aside at least one class about the African-American comedians, or I should say the ethnic comedians out there. The shame of this is most people look at them and turn away like they didn't exist because it was so embarrassing. The truth of the matter is they were forced into these positions because of, you know, the racist mood of Hollywood at the time. And believe me, there were some worse than others. (laughs) But um, I would say that these people were just as talented as their white counterparts. And I have to say that they are to be admired because they took a pile of garbage that was handed to them and they turned it into something really quite wonderful. And if you look beyond the shackles of stereotype, you will see comedians that were more than worth their salt. Stephen Fetchett was the first. He was the first big adult African-American star in America. His real name, he was born in 1902, and his real name was Lincoln Theodore Monroe Andrew Perry. My God, what a <laughs> majestic, majestic long lineage of name or a long... Is- Name it's of incredible. It's yeah. All the presidents. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 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 Um, and here's a guy who got into vaudeville with a partner at the time. He, he actually, the two of them were called Step and Fetch It. And eventually he broke up with the partner and he just took on the name. And his gimmick was, and I have to say he was on the Chitlin circuit. That was a lower tiered, all African-American vaudeville circuit. He would uh, play his lazy character for his African-American audience, which I find very interesting. And he would always finish up his act with this super fast dance and just dazzle everybody before he shuffled off again. So it's interesting to me that he was playing this almost minstrel-like character for an all-Black audience. Don't you find that kind of interesting? Yeah. You know, this also goes in line with there was a medium or a media called uh, the Soundies and Mm -hmm. there were videos. You know, we talk about MTV being that first modern day spearhead of the music video movement, I guess, which kind of emerged in the 80s. 
And, mm-hmm. but yet the black culture have always had a medium and they were called the soundies soundies. Yeah. Soundies were the, yeah. They were the original music videos and they were short films that had music. And, and, you know, what comes to mind is cabin kids. I mean, Duke Ellington uh-huh. had soundies, certainly Louis Armstrong, all of these, mm-hmm. the great heritage of the jazz greats, right. They, they would create a motion picture video or not mo- video, but motion pictures, films. Some of them were narrative, like the Fats Waller, which were really kind of funny. You know, the joint is jumping, jumping. If you oh, I love those. Or, it's hysterical. Or, your, or your, your feet's too big. Your feet's too big. Yeah, they're hysterical. You know, they're jamming yeah. in a, somewhere in the Bronx. They're all just dancing and having a great time to this rip roaring jam session. And the music is hot and the police barge in and the place just turns into pandemonium. It's really kind of funny to watch. It's almost like kind of like one of those old, you know, has the speed of the Keystone cops, but that's the same thing. And these were geared for, there were two things. There were the, that medium on the soundies where they would play with something similar, like a panorama, I think it was called, which was similar to a jukebox. Mm-hmm. They would play specifically in the clubs, speakeasies, um, taverns, whatever you wanted to call them, the watering holes of the people of the, you know, that had to use them as compared to mixing it up with everybody at large. Right. So I guess in the vaudeville circuit, the talent was being forced to play this minstrel position and he did it for the people of his own culture. I don't know that that's unique. You know, it's kind of like, why did Klezmer become unique to the people of mid-European, Hungarian, Jewish ethnic clan that had to keep moving from village to village because everywhere they went, they were going to get chased out of town. And it was like Klezmer Mm -hmm. music and it was fun and joyful for happiness. And yet it was woeful and sorrowful because believe me, these people had very woeful and sorrowful times. (laughs) Um, So, you know, maybe it's not that unusual that he was actually doing that which he could draw upon from out of his own cultural either as his sphere to re-portray back to the people that were in his audience. Well, another thing of interest is the fact that all through the years of minstrelsy, there were black minstrel shows. They were very popular. Right. On the on that circuit. So these even the uh, African-Americans were buying into this character, this lazy, slow Jim Crow like character. And I guess it, it sort of helped perpetuate that image, which was carried on by the white bosses of the entertainment industry. And that's pretty much all they knew of African-American entertainment. Of course, I'd have to separate the comedy from the music. White musicians were almost famous for going to Harlem to see their heroes, you know, like Satchmo and like uh, Duke Ellington and the rest. But I find it interesting that Stephen Fetchett made his bones in front of his own people, you know? And they accepted it, they loved it, they laughed. And eventually, 20th Century Fox came knocking and Stephen Fetchett became a huge star. He was the first African-American performer to earn a million dollars. Now, he didn't wear it well. It would be like giving a, someone who never had anything, you know, here's a million dollars. So he would buy a Rolls Royce. He would put on the sides of the Rolls Royce in neon step and fetch it. You know, he had a livery guy behind him just to open his door. He had a chauffeur, an African-American chauffeur. And eventually he just kind of blew all his money. He blew his reputation and he was pretty much out by the mid to late thirties. It was a, you know, a short party and he went back on the road and and all of this stuff, but he laid the groundwork for the people that followed. Now, another one, and probably my favorite, and the one I think is probably 
comedically the the uh, best, in my opinion. And I use that pun intended. Willie Best was his name. He also had an insulting nickname, and that was Sleep and Eat. <laughs> oh my gosh! Wow. I know. I know. Uh, he was. Well, you know. Well, you know. There is a furniture chain, which I was joking with some of my colleagues in the industry. What's it called? It's called Sit and Sleep. Yeah, yeah. Today, we have a furniture chain called Sit and Sleep. And I said, that does not sound like a good brand to motivate people to come on in and, and get some action and get some, you know, get some business going here. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. Sit and sleep. Well, I said the same thing about the burger chain called, what is it? in and out I said, that's, in a, and out. that's a horrible name for a burger. I think so, too. Are you kidding? You eat that fast food? Of course was, it's going to go out. Well, I was going to say, and what's on the bun? I mean, you know, which one am I getting here? All right, no, actually, okay, I don't want to say that because they might be a potential advertiser. And actually, hey, you never I, know. I, I, food is, I actually like that food. It tastes pretty good. And I know you're a vegetarian, so that doesn't speak to you. So anyway, but what I do, I, I did read up on In-N-Out. I wanted to know why it was so popular. And it turns out that they use really much better sources of food. Than All, the other across the board, I will say that. Yes. So that's yes. not that's not necessarily an endorsement, but at least that acknowledges that. Let's go back to sit and sleep or let's go back to uh, sleep and eat, sleep and eat, <laughs> sleep and eat. Yeah. Which sounds, oh, by yeah. the way, very bad for digestion. I can't think about sleeping and eating and, and how that would have a positive outcome. That's very toxic when you do that. So, so <laughs> You're so, so literal. Well, um, all right. Well, so tell us about Willie, this com comedian. Willie Best came up on the, uh, you know, a lot of people felt like he was imitating Step and Fetch It, but if you actually watch his films, you watch his appearances in films because he, he didn't star in any, he had his own thing going. He was younger. He was a bit more agile. He moved quickly, more so than Step and Fetch It ever did. And he spoke a little more clearly. Step and Fetch It really, to do an imitation, and please forgive me for doing this, but Step and Fetch It, if he had a dialogue line like, I think I'm going to the farm to settle down, he would say, I think I'm going to the farm to settle down. And he'd fade away. That was his delivery. That almost sounds like a Richard Pryor kind of a thing where Richard yes. Pryor as a character would draw upon that history as well. Yes, it's an exaggeration, of course, right, but right. when you went down south at that time, that was a, a dialect that you had to deal with up into modern times as well. Just like the white people down south, they have the same thing. But Willie Best, he was most memorable supporting other comics, famously with Bob Hope. He was in three or four movies, teamed, actually teamed with Bob Hope. Of course, he didn't get the equal billing, but Hope was very, very impressed by him and really gave a push to his career. He told uh, the reporters he was one of the most talented comedians he ever worked with, and I believe that's true. And Willie Best worked with, he worked with everybody, even the Marx Brothers, although he was cut out of uh, at the circus. But he worked in movies steadily, and eventually he was busted for drugs in the late 40s, and that ruined his movie career. But he transitioned into television, into early television. In fact, he had a regular role on My Little Margie as the elevator operator. He died very young of cancer. He was like 42 when he died. But he's my favorite. I think he was the most talented of the African-American comedians would, at would that, that time. Would that be the largest known, probably most recognizable character icon that he created was the elevator person on My Little Margie? Or would, would our audience of listeners know him by any other recognizable I would branded say, character? 
I, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I live in my own world, as you know. For me, it's the Bob Hope movies. If you talk about movies like Ghost Breakers, another one is called Nothing But The Truth. He was very prominent in these films. Like I say, he was like a partner to Bob Hope. So those would be the things I'd look out for. Who would you say came along next? Because we also have the stand-up in the like the Apollo Theater days. And you well, get into- this is a guy who played that. Mantan Moreland, a very accomplished comedian. Born in 1902, he was the same age as Stephen Fetchett, but he didn't gain fame until later on. When he was 14, he ran away from home and actually joined a minstrel show, which gave him his first experience. He went into vaudeville, eventually played in Connie's Inn at in Harlem, one of the big venues there. He got into a couple of Broadway shows. Blackbirds of 1928 was one of them, most famously. He toured vaudeville. He toured Europe. And eventually he got back to America. And in 1932, there was a very famous African-American comedy team, Miller and Lyles, the L-Y-L-E-S, Miller and Lyles. Flournoy Miller. Can you believe that first name? Flournoy. Flournoy. Flournoy Miller. (laughs) He broke up with with Lyles and he asked Mantan to be his partner in personal appearances. Now, let me go back one second. Flournoy Miller created an act with his partner, Lyles, and their main act was where they would have a conversation, but they would finish each other's sentences, right? So they would say, you know, I was going down to, and the other guy said, yeah, I was at the farm and I went to da da da, and then the other one would pick it up and it would go on and on. Oh, and on. back and forth thing, a ping pong yeah. deal. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes. This but anyway, uh, my, uh, my buddy, Louis J. Stadlin, who was a Broadway star, he heard it from good authority that Jerry Lewis remembered Miller and Lyles and stole their act. And that was the first act that Martin and Lewis did. Wow. How about that? Well, I wouldn't expect Uh, either Flournoy or Miller to be able to go, lady, lady, (laughs) oh, the hurting and the pain. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I find that very interesting. Lewis also stole the typewriter bit. Do you remember the? Yes. Sure. Yeah. He stole it from uh, Bill Daly. Do you remember Bill Daly on uh, I Dream of Jeannie and Newhart? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. He developed that. And and Lewis saw it and stole it. (laughs) What what is the expression about plagiarism or plagiarism? Something like that. I think it's plagiarism. Plagiarism. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, he he got together with him. And, and it's interesting because he did personal appearances with Miller. And then eventually Miller went on to other things. He was a playwright. He was a, a comedy writer. In fact, Miller was, he was famous for knocking the early days of the radio show Amos and Andy because he was offended by it. But by 1942, he was writing for it. He even helped develop the television show. And that was going to say that it was a major franchise between the television shows that used to run. Mm-hmm. And then eventually they even got adapted into cartoons. Somewhere in my archives, we've got the Amos and Andy cartoons. that Early, were early 1930s from yeah. Van Buren Studios. Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. And so you're saying this gentleman was actually writing for them as well. That's an interesting pivot to be able to go. Yeah. I, I find that this is distasteful, racist and et cetera. And then at some point he turns around and somebody says, I'll give you a paycheck. Get over here and start writing <laughs> like like uh what was it hattie mcdaniel said i could be a maid and make 25 dollars a week or i could play maids and make 1500 dollars a week so you had to look at the you know the practicality of it as well and it was sometimes it was the only game in town now that's not making excuses for you know his 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 character but he also lent an air of authenticity to the scripts so i think they were very wise to hire him 
So was he a black writer of comedy mm -hmm. so, as a writer? So he became the writer for Amos and Andy. Yeah. Okay. So Mantan, in the meantime, was noticed by motion picture people. And he had a very interesting career. He started out, of course, doing the same things that the, his predecessors were doing. And he continued that character. You know, he was, he was, yeah, feats do you stuff, you know, that kind of thing. His eyes were always bugged out. He was always frightened. But he started getting really good roles at a minor studio called Monogram. And uh, he was part of a series of films with an actor by the name of Frankie Darrow. He usually played jockeys. He was a very short guy played much younger than he actually was. And the two of them became a comedy team for a series of about 10 or 12 films at Monogram. And again, Mantan didn't get the billing that Frankie did, but they were a team. And they even did uh, routines together, sometimes with Frankie in blackface, unfortunately. But some of the movies are very entertaining and they're all available. You could probably see them on YouTube. Then there was a guy by the name of Ben Carter that Mantan teamed up with to make personal appearances. And he became a Mantan's straight man, which is interesting because Ben Carter was the head of the gay community in the Central Avenue. That was the Beverly Hills of the African-American performers was Central Avenue in Los Angeles. Rochester, Eddie Rochester Anderson had a beautiful home there. That was the exact replica of Jack Benny's in Beverly Hills. And oh, you could wow. rent it today, by the way. You could, you could, it's, it's up for uh, rental for vacations. Wow. You could uh, go to Rochester's house. Wow. Hattie McDaniel was the queen. Uh, Eddie Rochester Anderson was the king. Ben Carter was the head of the gay community. He was also the casting director in Hollywood and in New York. And he got a lot of work for his African-American contemporaries. Quite a guy. He died very young unfortunately, but he was very politically involved and he appears in a couple of movies with Mantan and they do the Miller and Lyles routine where they finish each other's sentences. It's in two later day Charlie Chan films where Mantan got the permanent job of playing Birmingham Brown, his servant, his driver, his whatever, comedy relief. And he made a bunch of those with Sidney Toller as Charlie Chan. And you have double offensiveness in those. You've got Antan yeah. Moreland playing, you know, the scared African-American. And you've got uh, Sidney Toller in Yellowface. Yeah, doing the Asian cultural stereotypes, which are also demeaning for what it's worth, but at the same time, very rich in terms of those portrayals. Again, Mantan Moreland, who brought so much to the comedy space. I mean, there are rosters of his films where he yeah. does actually have the significant title role as lead comic of Library, away from a lot of the other great Black comics and comedians of Black heritage. Well, he lasted all the way up to 1976. He was performing. An interesting trajectory, though, as the 1940s wore down, the country's mood towards these stereotypes was changing and Mantan was not getting work in movies anymore. So he went on the road up until about 1955 when he came back to make some, you've heard of race pictures. He made a few of those. And then eventually he started working in the 60s. He made a couple of movies for Carl Reiner. Carl Reiner used him twice in a Enter Laughing and a movie I love called The Comic with Dick Van Dyke. Oh, great uh, film. Great film. Yeah. Oh, I love it. It's one of my all time favorites. Okay. He also appears kind of prominently in a cult horror film that starred Lon Chaney Jr. called Spider Baby. 
And if you're a monster kid like I was, this is a movie you would know. And his scenes are extremely memorable. So the last movie he made was a piece of garbage called <laughs> called Wonton Ton, the dog who saved Hollywood, which had, <laughs> which had cameos from about 70 old stars. And he was one of them. It was nice of them to remember him and ask, you know. Yeah, um, that's that's fantastic. And then, of course, we moved on into the 70s and the whole black film culture changed into what I would call the beginning of the modern day interpretation of the awareness of black culture to positions of strength and dominance of police films. Get Christy Love. You got the whole movement uh -huh, where Shaft. Bill, Shaft, Bill Cosby came along and he has some great films that he actually mm -hmm. made before he you know became more known for his stand up comedy. And then that kind of started to change into a modern day interpretation of where we are in terms of the mixing of cinema and the box office and mm -hmm. where, what Absolutely. the portrayals of the cultures are. When he went on the road again after movies had enough of him, two of his straight men in his stage act, one was a guy, an unknown by the name of Tim Moore, who was on television on the Amos and Angie show, was the Kingfish. And as far as I'm concerned, a genius. He was oh, just Kingfish. hilarious. Absolutely. Everybody uh, would, you know, those are probably the most stellar names and Kingfish is right at the top. You know, you, uh, you we talk about names it. like Rochester, names like Kingfish. I mean, these were actually very significant brands in comedy and icons and, and characters. And very popular with white audiences, you know? And the other guy who played straight man to him for a while was a young man by the name of Red Fox. <laughs> Yes. How about that? Major television Major star. television star, you know, with Sanford and Sons and all of those mm -hmm. other phenomenal things that Red Fox. Oh, yeah. And then into movies. He made some movies as well. So he was just great. Very, very cool. So if people really want to get into the in-depth content and review of this, and I know you say you have your film course and you do a significant amount of chapters. And don't you have a book coming out on this too? You mentioned there's a soon-to-be-published book that's in the works. What is, yes. uh, what's coming out I on that and where is it going to be? I actually have two books. One is uh, coming out this year, uh, and it's about Abbott and Costello. The other one I am actually looking to self-publish online, and that's called Comedy Crazy. And it's just my thoughts about classic comedians. And there's an entire chapter. It's called Who Dat? <laughs> and it's all about the African-American culture in those days in motion picture comedies. Very cool. And if listeners are interested and they want to follow up with you on that to get a copy, where would they go and how do they find you? I would tell them to go to my website, which is my girlfriend actually put it together. And it is absolutely amazing. It's www.nicksantamaria.com. Very good. And do you think it'll also be available at the usual suspect places of Amazon, Kindle, et cetera, et cetera? Once I get it out there, it'll be, it, there'll be multiple places you could buy it. Well, I've heard you say that a few times. Standing on the street once in Las Vegas. And when it's hanging out, that's it's available. No, never mind. Okay. <laughs> By the way, I'm also going to be starting a television show, a streaming show shot from right here at my desk. The Nick Santa Maria show. It'll be streaming probably within the next month. Now, I'm sure at your website, people will be able to kind of find where those links are to go watch your Absolutely. show as well. Very cool. Absolutely. Very cool. Folks, this has been Nick Santa Maria joining us once again here on the program. He's always fun when he drops in and drops by and certainly a wealth of knowledge. Thanks so much for giving us your little kind of a potpourri of the 360 view on black heritage in comedy and film. This is very lovely uh, what you're saying, and I appreciate it. But there's one thing that I left out that I needed to mention, and especially for you. There is word, there's a rumor that Mantan Moreland that Mo Howard 
wanted Mantan to replace the recently departed Shemp Howard in 1955 with the Three Stooges. Now, I'm not a believer of this. I don't believe the rumor. But apparently the rumor was that Moe really wanted him and was a fan of his and went to Harry Cohn, who shot it down immediately. But that's, uh, I just thought that would be a point of interest. Well, it would still be the Three Stooges, considering that third stooge was replaced mm -hmm. so many, many, many times. It would certainly have been a very different cultural take on that franchise, wouldn't it have been? Absolutely. I mean, think about think about Mo slapping him. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I think I think it would be wince worthy. Yeah, maybe more than a wince or two, maybe a grabbing of the lower abdomen in pain, too. Right? <laughs> Yeah. Or the remote. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Well, thanks for sharing that. You're welcome, pal. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad it didn't manifest. Um, yeah, me too. Anyway, bud, thanks again. We will have you back. You're welcome anytime. And we should do a lot more of this. And I'm sure as uh, time moves on, we'll find a way to get together. And we'll be watching for your online television show. I have a feeling there might be a convergence of paths there later on down the line as well. Wonderful, Ron. Thank you so much. Stay healthy. Stay well. You too. Cheers, babe.